listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. Eric Daw. That dude, that guy, he said, he... Yep, you hate him. Yes, indeed. Welcome to the show. It's the Fret Files Podcast, your fortnightly foray into guitar geekery. My name is Eric Da. My profession is guitar science with 25 years of experience. Man, that's creeping up on 30 now. Ooh, 25 years of experience restoring, building, and repairing guitars. Today's co-host is Nat. Howdy, Nat. Well, greetings. Glad to be here. Yeah, good to have you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. I will read the listeners' submitted questions, and Eric will try to answer them the best he can. I'll try. Drawing on his experience as a professional luthier. Mm-hmm. So what have you been working on? What is on your bench lately? Uh, lately, it's been a lot of everything. Just a lot of everything. I worked on a beautiful 1955 Les Paul custom. No way. Mm-hmm. You oh, know, man. You know, the black it's Les black. Paul with the two P90s, gold hardware. Yeah. yeah. And like big square inlays. Yeah, beautiful guitar. Oh, man. Um, it was one of the um, Les Pauls with the, it's the one of the customs with the uh, the neck pickup is the, the staple P90. Have you Whoa. seen the staple P90? Which is like, is that a P85 or just a staple P90? Yeah, I, well, I don't think it's a P85. Huh. You mean, where'd you come up with that? It's, I got a crazy brain. I'm Look good at, at crosswords. Look at you bringing in the, Making bringing stuff in the up guitar facts. That can't be fact-checked on the fly. Uh, I don't think that that's a P85. I've, I've never heard... I, Let's look it up. Oh, but, don't. I don't want um, to fact I check. think that it's just, a. they call it a P90 staple. A staple. Yeah. P85 pickup. I'm going to Google this just live right well, here on the podcast. While you're doing that, I'll ask you, are these in 1955, did they have good bones? Do they have good neck angles and attachment angles? All the things that were classic at that point? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Pretty awesome, huh? A P85 is an EMG. That's a modern, that's an EMG active P90. Well, I clearly didn't mean that. I meant something right. else. <laughs> so the, the P90, a P90 staple pickup is um, instead of, so, so a regular P90 has bar Alnico magnets on the bottom and then mm-hmm. adjustable screw, steel screws that pass through the pickup and the magnets at the bottom. Oh. The staple pickup has... Six rectangular adjustable little uh, Alnico 5 rods. Oh, so it's really different. It's more like that DeArmond, maybe, with the yeah, screw thing. It looks totally different. Like, Although, it looks like, yeah. It looks like this. Let me show you. I'm reticent to even looks like this. make declarative like statements that can be evaluated at this point. Yeah, they're rad. Let's that's, get some. That's a staple pickup. I'll put one in the show notes. But, you know, for whatever reason, Gibson would put the staple pickup in the neck position and the regular P90 in the bridge position. I don't know what the deal was with that. Maybe we'll have to come up with a guitar history corner at some point. That is strange. 
I think those are neat with the black pickup covers and the black carved top and oh yeah, big inlays. Well, that's neat. Yeah, they're it's beautiful. I worked on uh, that. It needed some fret work. I've worked on. Uh, I've been doing a lot of custom one-off pickups lately. People have been like interesting, well, strange brands. Um, not only making s- some pickups for people, but uh, rewinding. Pickups, weird, weird old ones. Yeah. yeah, yeah. People have been sending me rewinds, and then I'm working on what I'm trying to do with the custom guitars that I make. So what I used to do is, I would get, you know, three of them or however many, two or three mm-hmm. or four, go one at a time, and then you paint them, and then there's like a week or ten days downtime between painting and assembly where you ha- you have to let the paint cure. You know, mm-hmm. and then I would just do repairs or whatever in the meantime. Well, now what I'm doing, I paint a batch and then get another batch going and paint that. Oh man! And then go some... back to the first batch. Yeah, this I'm is trying Henry it. Ford. Keep the man working all the time. I'm tr- I'm I'm trying it out. We're gonna see how it works. Yeah, pretty soon there will be a night shift. No, that's a heck of a thing. There's already a night shift. It's just me. I work day <laughs> and night. I know. I know. That's a heck of a thing. Well, that's that's good that you got a little bit. You got a little timing going. Mm-hmm. That's good. And so you're still doing that. The operations the same time instead of like one at a time would be pretty terrible. But yeah, you do a batch of paint. Yeah, I'm, I do them in batches. But now I'm I'm gonna start to try to stagger them, which seems mm-hmm. to make more sense. And I don't know why I haven't been doing that this whole time. Right? Yeah. Yeah, That's fine. Yeah. Well, because you're not a high production outfit. Yeah. Right. I'm just a guy. Well, you're doing super custom stuff. Uh, Let me see what we've got going on here. I am clicking around on this computer, and we are going to do a uh, little bit of guitar history. Oh, good. You want to? Oh, yeah. All right. Let's do it. The Guitar History Corner. Mm-hmm. Oh. It's very official. <laughs> uh, are you familiar with Albert King much? Yep, yep, yep. I mm-hmm. love Albert King, man. I think he played upside down lefty. Yeah, well, a, yeah. he's With a flying V for a while, didn't he? Yeah, so he, well, usually a flying V, yeah. So he played left-handed, but it's strung righty, so yeah. the skinny string is on the on the top. top still. Yeah. Yeah. So when he does those big bends, he pulls, he's pulling yeah. that string down. It's a, a different, it's, it's interesting. Cool. Yeah. Yep. So this, uh, I've got a little guitar history corner here about, uh, Albert King's guitar. Oh, let's hear it. Do you know, well, there were several over the years. Hmm. But do you, but he always named them the same name. Do you know what well, he, like George Foreman, his kids. What? Don't, fa- don't fact check that, but he named his kids George. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> I'm going to have to stop. Okay, I'm cut off. Okay, so this Albert King guy, Listen, he had iterations. He had several of these flying fees, and he would name them, each one, the same name, female name. Yeah. Do you know what he named those guitars? Not Lucille. Let me, give me a chance. No, but you're real close. Um, Lucy? Yes. I'll be doggone. I know. You'd think that it was kind of a... Rip off of BB well, King. Well, yeah, who came first? But he claims no. He claims that he got that from uh, Lucille Ball. That's pretty good. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. He he claims that he named his guitar after Lucille Ball. Well, I don't know why. Striking. I guess. Well, yeah, I guess so. Huh. 
Um, Lucy, this is from this is from Wikipedia. This guitar or Albert King's series of guitars has its own Wikipedia page. Wow! How about that? Yeah, it's arrived. I mean, you know, you're famous when yeah. your guitar has your has its own Wikipedia yeah. page. Mm-hmm. Lucy is the name given to the Gibson Flying V and a series of copies owned by blues guitarist Albert King. He mm-hmm. he picked the Flying V at the time when few other guitarists did because of its style, and in return, he helped make it famous. Hmm. He looks just huge with this Flying V because, you know, it's such a skinny body, such a narrow there wasn't body. Much to it. Um. He's just this big hurricane guy. I mean, he's just a giant fella. Oh my gosh. And you can, you probably just like Paul McCartney, why he chose the guitar he chose. Oh, maybe. It's symmetrical. Oh, I see what you're saying. I've looked at eBay a lot, dude. See, Nat is left handed. <laughs> I see things differently. Nat is left handed. So, he's, so I notice he's always, he always knows about the left handed things. Mm hmm. The original Lucy, named for Lucille Ball, was a right-handed 1958 Gibson Flying V made out of Carina wood. Oh, boy. And that's the guitar King used on almost all of the important recordings he made for Stack Records. Wow. Did I say Stack Records? That's all right. Stacks. Stacks Records. One of my favorite labels. Mm-hmm. How could I, how could I say it improperly? So that, that guitar was stolen. Oh, man. And then later recovered. How about that? Weird. He bought it in his St. Louis days in the late 50s when his career was just starting to, starting to take off. Well, that guitar came out in 1958, is my yeah. recollection. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's great. It was avant-garde. Yeah. Good for him. So he must have bought it new. Yeah. Um, he says he kept the name secret for a while and then, <laughs> and then revealed it as Lucy yeah. some years later. All right. So I don't know if that's okay. Just had private conversations. I mean, you know, you gotta just you gotta just believe him. Just take him for his word. Yeah. Well, I keep my. He didn't name retroactively name it Lucy. No, probably not. I don't know. Who knows? So the second Lucy was made by Luthier Dan Earlywine. Oh yeah. You've seen that guitar, right? It I says have. Albert King on the head, on the on the fingerboard. Yeah. Uh, Dan saw King. Um, when he played at the Ann Arbor Blues Festival in Michigan in 1970, and in 1971 had met King at a show in Ann Arbor, hmm. he offered to build him a true left-handed V out of a 125-year-old piece of black walnut. That sounds heavy. Yeah, I think probably. he's a hurricane yeah, dude. Yeah, probably was. I don't know. It's hard to say. Hmm. Probably was. Uh, King agreed, and he came to Erlewine's shop, the day after, where Early Wine measured his guitar and took notes, and King asked for his name to be inlaid on the fingerboard. Cool. And the name Lucy put on the head, the headstock. There. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this Lucy guitar was delivered to King in May of 1972. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, that guitar was, it says, it, it had to undergo repairs in Memphis after being underwater for 24 hours yeah. due to a tornado in the mid-'80s. Dang it. Yeah. That's detailed in the book. Yeah. How about that? Uh, Erlewine has since made a number of copies, all from the same slab of walnut. Whoa. He says he's got enough wood to make 20 or so Lucy's. Whoa. Yeah. The third Lucy, 
There's there's five of these. I can't help but worry about the previous ones, you know? Well, awesome. all right. You got to move on. I guess. Third Lucy, in 1980, a third Lucy was made by Bradley Prokopow. Oh. Mm-hmm. King played the Erlewine and Prokopow guitars until his death in 92. The fourth Lucy was built by John Bolin here uh, from from Idaho. What? Yeah, Boise, Idaho. You know who John Bolin is? No. Oh, custom guitar maker. He makes guitars for Billy Gibbons and all kinds of people. Is that right? Yeah. No. yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I tried right. to go to work for him in the late 90s. But when I, he was building. I moved that. to Seattle instead. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I have some stories about him I'll have to tell you. Can't wait. Uh, so... It was commissioned from Billy Gibbons, mm. and it's known as the Pink Lucy. Maybe pink. Mm-hmm. Probably is, and it currently resides at the Stax Museum in Memphis. Oh, cool. Huh. I don't remember seeing it. I'm, I went there. there. Yeah, I went there, but it was years ago. Uh, the fifth Lucy was a custom archtop flying V. Okay, now we're extending yeah, we're getting, a little too far. We're getting nuts now. It was yeah. built by Tom Holmes in 1987, and it was also commissioned by Billy Gibbons and given to Albert King for his 64th birthday. Huh. Yeah. It was recently sold to a private collector. Yeah, nameless. Mm-hmm. How about that? Yeah. Do you know who owns the that first 58? That was lost and found, uh, and it Lucy. never went underwater for 24 hours. Someone owns it, and someone famous who you, you would know his name. Um, a guitar nerdy guy? Give me a little mm-hmm. hint. Yeah. That one guitar nerd that has all the guitars? Yeah. Oh, I knew Steven it. Steven Seagal. No, I was thinking of that other guy. Nope. Steven Seagal. He owns the 58 and 66 Flying Vs and the Erlewine copy. I think he plays them. Probably. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, a rumor has it that uh, that 58V was a bargaining chip in a craps game in the late 60s. Oh, I bet. Yeah, I don't know about that. Oh, Seagal boy. says he bought it in Memphis after the guitar had been hidden for 20 years. He bought the Erlewine copy in the early 2000s. That would have been after Albert King died. He died mm-hmm. in 92. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, I'm a big Albert King fan and... Uh, it's just interesting to hear about these guitars. Yeah. yeah. That's neat. I know you do like those big singing, strong notes, you know? Not like a flurry, but as much as just great big ones, I think. There is a, there's a kind of an interesting story here, if you want to get into the, uh, you know, paranormal. You know I do. Uh, Steven Seagal's repairman had oh, no. the guitar in his shop, right? The, um, the, the original one. Yeah, Lucy One. No, no, no. Well, let me read. Let me go back. Early one copy. So this is the the second one, the early wine one that he played for years. Uh, that was in uh, Steven Seagal's uh, repairman's shop, and the repairman's seven year old son happened to see it along with the ghost. Oh no! Of Albert King. You got to go. Got to get out of here, Albert. He claims, the seven-year-old son claims he saw a guy with around the guitar and then later uh, identified 
from a picture as being Albert King. Ah, dang it. How about that? That's scary. I know, man. It could be. That could be. I don't don't know. I ain't going to buy any of his guitars anymore. Yeah, how about that? Man. That's good. Albert King, man. There, there's some clips of him playing on YouTube that just would knock your socks off. It's hmm. just unbelievable, man. The, just the, the power and the phrasing. Mm-hmm. Ooh, I love it. It's good stuff. We have uh, some some phone calls. We do. Yeah, we do. We've we'll hit got that some, button. Yeah. Uh, well, let me take this. Don't mean thing, to rush These you. things take time. I know. But yes, we absolutely have some phone calls. Hey, Eric and Matt. Hi. Brandon calling from the cornfields of Indiana. Hope you guys are well. Oh, good. Thanks for continuing to do the podcast. I always learn a ton as I listen to every episode. Uh, I've been working on my bass guitars a lot lately, mostly Fender style guitars and tweaking my setups. And I thought I'd uh, bounce a couple things off of you. First, is there, do you have any bass setup tips just in general? Do you concern yourself with anything? specific on a bass setup that's unique to bass guitars or do you just approach it like you would anything else uh, i'm just curious uh and then beyond that i've been noticing that like i have two bases that are both fender style both on necks and um one to get the action right i have to set the saddles fairly high relative to the bridge plate which means that the little allen screws the height adjust screws are pushed way down so that the saddles are fairly high and that's fine because there's plenty of adjustment um, and that keeps the screws low and not sticking up and snaggy or whatever. And on the other base, the saddles, it's kind of the opposite situation. They're pretty low to the bridge plate. They're not bottomed out. They could go a little further down, uh, but this causes the height adjustment screws to stick up. And I know that this all relates to neck angle and it applies to other guitars as well, like straps and tellies. But how much do you worry about that, not just the action, but the saddle height and the possibility of protruding screws. If you're within the range of adjustment, is there a, a too high or a too low that you try to avoid that you feel like has any kind of tonal effect? When would you decide to shim the neck or take some other more drastic measures? Uh, just interested in what you think about that. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Uh, keep up the great work. Thanks a lot. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Uh, I... There are a few different things to keep in mind for bases. One is that um, the necks are so long and they're under so much string tension from those big, fat, heavy strings that uh, you do see m- more warped necks on bases, it seems like. you know. And so uh, one thing I like to do with bases that I, I don't typically do with guitars... Uh, one thing I do like to do with basses is I will, um, I'll, I'll take the strings loose and if it's like a, like a bolt on, like a Fender style bass, I'll take the neck off. Uh, and I like to, um, clamp it to a table or you can clamp it to, uh, you know, just a steel beam, whatever beam you've got, like a sanding beam. And put the neck where I want it and then adjust the truss rod up to that. Because so many times you've got um, bases with with warped necks where when when I adjust the when you adjust the truss rod it's hard to it's hard to do it under string tension. Oh okay. Yeah. Because the truss rod has to work really hard to negate that tension. So it's easier if you take the tension off 
uh, and then adjust the neck off that of way. the body. Yeah, that's kind of how I like to do it, but not every time. It de- you know, it just depends case by case what the deal is. I see. But what about those um, the the range of adjustment? Is there something where you'd know? I need to shim the neck or change this body angle, he was saying. Yeah. The neck body. Um, within the range of adjustment for uh, the saddle the, yeah, yeah. is the sweet spot. I like to, you know, hit about the middle of the range of adjustment. And it sounds like he's got one where the saddles are sitting kind of high and one mm-hmm. where the saddles are sitting kind of low. Yep. So um, that's perfectly okay, though. You know, as long as the bass plays and as long as you're still within the range of adjustment, yep. that's fine. That's absolutely yep. fine. I do hear people talk about with, like with Telecasters, um, that they feel like there's uh, an improvement in tone and sustain when the saddles are sitting a little bit high. Like the geometry, okay. the geometry yeah. of, you know, mm-hmm. the way things work out, with, it means that the neck is sitting at the right angle to get the strings, you know, at the right yeah. angle to where the saddles are sitting just slightly high, um, rather than low. Yeah. You know, if, if the saddles are almost bottomed out, then that's, that's not super good. I could see that a little bit. Yeah. And I know you're not too concerned with the screws protruding. It I'm just not. doesn't personally bother you. A lot of guys are. Yeah. I, it does not bother me. No, you got other things to worry about is what you told me. Did I? Yeah. Is that what I said? Hey, I can, I can sense this is out just a tiny bit. Well, yeah. Don't worry about that. Yeah. Some people tend to have a problem with that, but I, it doesn't bother me. Yeah. Thank you, Brannon. Was that Brannon? That was Brannon. Yeah. From Heartland. Let's see. I know we've got another call here, but I think it's one of these things where somebody sent it to my email. Yeah, here we go. Hi, Eric, and uh, possibly Nat. Uh, oh, hope you're well. It's Ben here in the UK. Yeah, I was just calling with a quick question about setting up strat vibrato or tremolo systems um with baritone strings i recently restrung my strat that i just wasn't using um with a set of baritone strings to see if it would work and it kind of does it sounds great the intonation's pretty good i had to tweak it a little bit but i really want to set the um the trem up so it kind of mm. is <laughs> is is good it's not good at the moment. I had it screwed down tight to the body and I've kind of loosened the springs off and I've played with it a bit and it does work, but it's a bit stiff and I didn't know if I needed to take a spring off. It's got three springs in the back at the moment. Um, so basically, yeah, can you give it like an idiot's guide to setting up a strat trim? Because, you know, I could watch loads of videos on YouTube, but I, I trust your opinion more. Um, so, yeah, thank you very much. Podcast is great as ever. Um, stay well. Bye-bye. Thank you, sir. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're in uncharted territory there. I'm yeah. curious what you're tuning those strings to. Is he tuning it like a baritone? He well, wouldn't say, he, does or, he? Or why else would you put those on? And he didn't specifically say 
Yeah. How are you going to set up a tremolo for baritone strings? No, he's just saying in general. Yeah, in general. Yeah. Um, there are basically two ways to set up the Strat, the basic six-point Strat tremolo, the vintage style Strat trem. The way it's actually designed to work is um, to be floating up off the body just a little bit, yep. so sitting okay. at just a slight angle, right? And uh, that way, when you use the tremolo arm, you can go up or down in yep. a pitch. Makes sense. And if you do set it up floating, they, uh, I think that the recommended measurement there is an eighth of an inch off the top from, you know, little the tiny back bit of edge. A gap. Yeah. Okay, yep. So you'll have a little gap there, so you can use the trem up or down. Now, the way to set that is... Um, it's a balance between the strings and the springs. So mm -hmm. you have to basically find that balance and it just involves a lot of retuning and then tightening up or loosening the tremolo claw to find where that balance is. The other thing you can do is use like a, uh, a spacer, an eighth of an inch spacer and put it back there behind the bridge and... Uh, tighten the springs down so that it's sitting on that spacer. Right. Tune up the guitar and then start backing off the tremolo claw until that spacer just comes loose. Oh. And that way you know you've got it set right. When you've got it in tune. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, the other way to do it, the other way to set up a, a, your basic vintage uh, style strat tremolo is to have it just flush against the body. What? Yeah. That's why I give up. Come on, people. Try. And then and then you can either, you know, you can either just tighten up the springs a lot and then never use the trem or you can uh instead of having a spacer there, right? You just start backing off the tremolo claw just until the just until the bridge starts to lift off the top. Okay. And so then you know you've hit the right balance. Okay. I thought you meant leave it down there flush with the top. No, yeah, you'd leave it. Okay. So 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 you just want it so that it's just barely resting on the top, but there's almost no tension on it. So yep. you can't lift up on the bar. You can't Okay. go up in pitch, but you can go down in pitch and it still has a smooth feel. Okay. I'll accept that. Yeah. That's basically the two ways you know to set them up there's other ways like with a, a block behind it so it won't move at all hmm. you know there's all kinds of ways but if you're going to use the arm it's either floating off of the floating off the body about an eighth of an inch or flush against the body okay yeah that's that's how it's done and then you just get a little more tension with those baritone strings, we presume. I don't, I'm not even going to go there. I'm not sure what he's doing. I'm not sure what he's doing. To even dignify that with response, but appreciate <laughs> you, Ben. <laughs> Let's take a little break, do a commercial, and we'll be right back with emails. This episode of the Fret Files podcast is brought to you by Apex Coffee Roasters. Imagine always having fresh roasted coffee in your home. Now, imagine you didn't even have to leave the house for it. 
A subscription with Apex Coffee Roasters makes all of this possible. You choose the plan that best suits your needs, and they handle the rest. Their roaster will select a coffee option just for you and send it your way. Discounts are applied if you get a six-month or a year-long subscription. And shipping included if you're in the USA. Great coffee every morning. Just got a little bit easier. That's apexcoffeeroasters.com. And if you go there and use my promo code, you get an additional 10% off. That's pinup, P-I-N-U-P. That's at apexcoffeeroasters.com. We've talked a lot about neck straightening irons on the show, and people write to me and they say, Eric, where can I get one? Well, until now, I didn't have anywhere to send people because nobody makes them anymore, except for my buddy Rick at playersgearmusic.com. You can go to Players Gear Music, you can order a neck straightening iron, some people call it a neck press or a neck heater. It is an invaluable tool in my shop. I use it all the time. I'd be lost without one of these. I, I love having a neck straightening iron, and Rick is making a really, really stout industrial. It, I, I, think it, I think it's the best one that I've used, and I've, I've used a lot. I've used uh, the commercially available ones that they used to sell in the 70s and 80s, but they don't sell them anymore. Well, now you can get one from playersgearmusic.com they're $7.49 I know that seems like a lot it's it's a tool I tell you what it's going to pay for itself a hundred times over if you go to playersgearmusic.com scroll down on the main page scroll 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 down to where it says fan of the fret files podcast you click that that adds one to your cart and it's 50 bucks off. So instead of 749, it's 699. 699, free shipping, and it's yours. A neck straightening iron, playersgearmusic.com has them, and you need one. I'm telling you. So go to playersgearmusic.com and check it out and don't forget to tell Rick that the Fret Files podcast sent you. Hello, Eric. Why are maple fretboards on acoustic guitars so rare? I think it looks really cool, but the selection is very limited. I'm not really a tone wood guy, but is it because they would be too bright? Thanks, Bryce in Minnesota. Mm, interesting question, Bryce. Mm -hmm. You do see them on acoustic guitars, but not very often, and I would guess that the reason being is that it's just not a traditional fingerboard option for a, huh. for an acoustic guitar. Um, maple, when you think of a maple fingerboard, what do you think of? What kind of guitar do you think of? I think of a Fender-style so guitar. Everybody does, right? So Fender it kind of are the ones that uh, really, I don't know if they pioneered it, but they certainly popularized it. And so it's just associated with an electric solid-body guitar. Yeah. Nobody made maple fingerboard acoustic guitars back in the day. Mm. And I can't really think of any other reason other than I think that just traditional, you know, acoustic guitars are pretty traditional. Yeah. Just and I yeah, I think that an acoustic builders would find it distasteful. Yeah, just kind of aesthetic reasons and maybe it was uh 
like you're saying, kind of already established that these are for electric guitars, huh? Uh, and I, you know, your your um, comment that is it would it would they just be too bright? I don't I don't think that that's the reason. You see ebony finger boards on mm-hmm. on acoustic guitars, and that's certainly a hard wood. But those are visually bright. Or visually dark, and we hear with our eyes. So yeah, right. It kind of works out. <laughs> Good point. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I think it's just tradition. Huh? Yeah. Thanks, Bryce. Good one, Bryce. A big thumbs up of affirmation on what you said on the latest episode about humidifying guitars. Okay. I learned my lesson the hard way with a crack in my beloved Larave after moving from Tennessee, where I did not, where I didn't know anyone who worried about humidifying their guitars to Ohio, and then Indiana, where the winters are terrible on guitars. So yes, 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 keep them in their cases with case humidifiers and run room uh, slash house humidifiers too, if possible. Mm -hmm. I agree. Buy some of those cheap digital hygrometers from Amazon so you can monitor room humidity. I do that as well. Mm -hmm. Boy, he's been severely chastened by this. Here's my hack. Sure, you buy one of the menu, many manufactured solutions for guitar humidifiers, but I go to the dollar store and pick up a pack of plastic travel soap containers. Mm-hmm. A little snap, kind of a um, little soap holder, usually two or three for $1, and, pack, and a pack of simple kitchen sponges, also two for a dollar, and use a step bit to drill some holes in the top and bottom of the soap dish and cut out the sponges, cut, well, cut the sponges to fit, usually in half, and I put the two halves, I put two halves in each dish. Mm-hmm. Keep them wet, keep the whole thing somewhere in your case, and as the water evaporates, it will keep your guitar and case humidified. Mm-hmm. It might not be as precise as those humidipacks, which I think is a name brand, right? Yeah. Probably. But it's as good as a lot of the options out there, and instead, and instead of twenty to ten to twenty dollars each, I can make a batch of four to six of these for what works out to about a dollar each. I've given away quite a few of them to guitar player friends as I continue to evangelize about the importance of humidifying your guitars, especially solid wood acoustics. That's Brannon. That's our uh, Midwestern bet. guy. Absolutely, Brannon. I could not agree more. And I've been doing that for for years as well. You know. Um, an even easier thing to do is just put a sponge in a Ziploc mm-hmm. and poke holes in it, you know. Or try to keep it open, yeah. Yeah, because if I've got a bunch of guitars in my shop and I need to keep them all humidified while they're here, uh, I'll just put sponges in in plastic bags and with holes poked in them, mm-hmm. you know, and dangle them off of the strings. But anything, anything's better than nothing. You know, if you want to use oh, store-bought yeah. humidifiers, go for it. But yeah, make your own. It, it it couldn't be simpler. Yeah. It couldn't be simpler. You just keep a, a sponge moist and then keep it in some kind of container with holes in it. Yep. Absolutely. Make your own. Yeah. I kind of retrofitted. I got a store-bought thing because I was thinking I really have to start doing this. I got a store-bought container that had these kind of proprietary non-reusable gel packs, Mm -hmm. which is just the craziest thing. It's like shipping water from Florida or something like that, and then you can't refill these things. And then I just put 
I kept the plastic outer and refill it with uh, kitchen sponges cut down. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Got to do it. Thank you, Brandon. Well, that's a good one. That's hey, a good tip. Eric and Nat. Howdy. Thanks for the help on the strap lock situation from the last episode. With your help, I made a successful repair and replaced the noisy, clunky, and oblong strap locks with Leo's tried and true nickel buttons. Amazing how much better I like this strat with that simple adjustment. Very good. Right on. Regarding that dirty old Tysco on my bench, oh boy. I've got it all cleaned up, and while wiring the pickup switches gave me a headache, my real trouble is getting the solder to grab the back of the potentiometers for grounding. Ever had this issue? I'm going to try a different type of solder, but if you have any ideas for why the flat backs of these pots don't seem to want any company, and any ideas for getting it to really stick, it would be greatly appreciated. Thanks, Sean from Ohio. You betcha, Sean. Thank you, sir. Yeah, sometimes soldering onto pots can be tricky if they are um, not properly prepared, prepped. Yeah. yeah, they have to be. They have to be prepped. So, mm-hmm. um, th- I've seen some too that have like a weird coating on them. Yeah, that yellowish yeah stuff. Like you can't really solder to it. So, yeah. Um, if you're having trouble soldering to the backs of pots, here are my recommendations. First, you want to make sure you're using the right equipment. So you're sol- you need to use you need to have a soldering iron that gets real hot. A big one. Those orange pencil irons aren't going to cut it. Mm-hmm. It's just not going to get hot enough because what happens is as you're heating it up, the pot is big enough that it acts as a heat sink mm-hmm. and it just sucks up all the heat and never lets the solder get quite hot enough to do its thing. It might melt a little bit, but it doesn't stick. And that's what we need to do. we got to get it up to, like, you know, 700 degrees here. In in one little spot without the time that it takes with a little tiny pencil thing mm-hmm. that could wreck the pot. So, like a nice Weller, um, I think mine's an SE51 or something like that. Yeah. A nice Weller with a an adjustable thermostat that that has um you know it's got the the little brick with a knob on it oh yeah right so it's not just a, it's not just a soldering iron with a plug on the end of the right <laughs> you just plug into the wall. it's yeah. got a it's got a power supply it's got with, a power supply with, with a separate soldering iron yeah, yeah. it's kind of nice if it dims the lights a little bit too when, <laughs> yeah right when, when you, you flip you the, the switch uh, so you got to make sure you're using the right soldering iron and that it's hot enough. The other thing about your soldering iron, about your equipment is you got to make sure that the tip is clean and tinned. Mm-hmm. Now, this is real basic stuff. So you probably already know this and you're going, Eric, come on, give me a break, man. I know how to solder. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just, you know, I'm just trying to cover all my bases. And you got to say it. Yep. Yeah, it has to be said. So, mm-hmm. Now, assuming that you've got a good pro soldering iron that's getting hot enough and that the tip is nice and tinned, you need to make sure that the pot is prepped properly. And what you can do is take some sandpaper or a file and just score up and scratch up the uh, surface there that you're about to solder to if you're having problems getting it to stick. If you're using, like, CTS pots or something... 
the real standard normal mm-hmm. pots uh you shouldn't have to do this yeah okay it's yeah. it's mostly like weird old japanese pots that are junky and should probably he's talking about this tice yeah coat, right? and they're they're dipped in something or yeah. who knows what um so what you want to do is get it down to bare metal then i would use solder flux oh which yeah. is a which is a little paste like a little amber colored paste and once you get you know you've you're down to a spot of bare metal then you can put solder flux on there and that's just a little paste that'll come in a little the, just uh, a little like a thingy yeah just a little plastic yeah. you know deal um flip top deal use a q tip and put some paste flux right on the spot where you're going to solder and you can also dip your soldering iron in it huh mhm well, i was going to ask cuz i know you do use that a lot but i do it really helps the solder yeah excuse me it really helps the solder flow and that's what we need. We need the solder to flow and really hit the right temperature. Adhere just ad- right. Yeah, and ad- adhere to the metal. So those are my recommendations. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. That's really that's pretty it. good. That was thorough. That's really it, man. I like it. Thank you, Sean. All right. How about this one? Eric and Nat. Let's get super basic. If you don't mind, what are the best ways to get your guitar to stay in tune? Hmm. What are the tips and tricks of the pros for tuning stability? Hmm. Thanks, JR from Reno, Nevada. Thanks, JR. Well, I mean, it depends on the guitar, but let's just talk about guitars in general. The first thing that you want to make sure is that it's in good operating order. It has to be set up properly. So... If the saddles aren't in the right place, or if the nut isn't cut quite properly, uh, or even, even you know, like pretty gnarly fretware mm-hmm. yeah. on big frets, that'll that'll throw things off. So you got to make sure your guitar is operating properly. Now we could do a whole lot of information about that, but that's just yeah. generally speaking, you want to make sure it's set up properly. So the saddles are adjusted right for intonation. You've got fresh strings that yep. are um, just broken in, so they're not stretching anymore. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure that you're tying off the strings right on the on the tuner themselves. Yeah, you do a good job of that, and I don't. I was just thinking about that. That yeah, nobody that's does. Important. Yeah, it is important. People lack the patience, or I don't know. There's a few there's a few different good ways to do it, but whatever you do, make sure that the string isn't slipping back through the tuner. So uh, a good three winds at least around the tuner is good. I use like a little lock twist where, where this, the excess string comes back around the capstan and underneath the speaking length of the string, and it gets tightened up like yeah. some kind of half-hitch knot. Yep. And that will make sure that the uh that the string is secured to the tuner. Yep, it's good. Unless you have safety post like vintage fender style tuners where the string tip just goes directly down into the hole in the center of the tuner. Like perpendicular to the guitar neck, right? Yeah. 
Wow. Right. So, uh, the guitar has to be set up right. Make sure the tuners, the strings are attached to the tuner properly. Um, I like to use a little bit of graphite in each nut slot. That will help a lot. I get a lot of people who will come to me and they'll say, hmm, I, my guitar won't stay in tune, so put these locking tuners on it. And I get the guitar yeah. on my bench, and it's not set up at all. The saddles are in the wrong place. The nut isn't cut right. They're not using any kind of graphite in the nut slots. And I'll tell him, look, these locking tuners are, in my opinion, unnecessary. If you want me to put them on, I will. But there are about 10 other things we should do first to make this guitar tune properly. It's almost never the tuners. But I run into that all the time. People think, well, I'm having tuning problems, so it must be the tuners. Yeah, even if it's got that lash in it, I guess if you if you tune it up and get it good, it still stays in tune sometimes. Yeah, even the most like poor quality tuners generally will hold a tune because they're they're stronger than than this than okay. the string, you know? Yeah. Like the tu- the tuners don't tune they don't slip by themselves. Yeah, from pure tension. Yeah, it's a matter of yep. securing it onto the capstan properly. And then um, making sure everything else is right. So It's not bound up anywhere yeah, on that string length. It's almost never the tuners. Huh. Uh, you want to make sure that the string is moving freely back and forth through the nut slots. So when you tune, if you're hearing a little ping, ping, tink, 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 ping. Yeah, oh boy. Then your string is getting hung up somewhere. Yep. And it's almost certainly in the nut. Yep. And you don't use a lot of graphite. I I pictured that you needed to use a lot, but it's almost imperceptible. Under It's just underneath just the string. Just a tiny little bit of graphite. So and the way I do yeah. it is I use a sharp pencil to do it. Yeah, and that's enough, huh? And I just roll I roll that sharp pencil lid uh, along the... Um, I just roll it In that into, the, into the slot, and you just get these tiny little graphite shavings. And that's what you want. They're like little tiny ball bearings. It's that's oh, man. That's what you want. So the string is able to, you know, when you tune or bend or use the tremolo, the string is able to move back and forth through the nut without sticking somewhere. Mm-hmm. I like it. Now there's all kinds of tuning problems we could get into with tremolo use. Oh, boy. But we're not even going to go there. Mm-mm. These are the basic it's things. A family to, show, yeah, you know? the, right. These are the basic things. If he says, you know, one thing that came to my mind, he says, "What are the tips and tricks that the pros use?" Well, if you want to get super crazy, oh boy, uh, I know guitar techs who um, set up guitars for touring musicians who they will take the ball into the string and where all the uh, Those wraps. Down. Where all the wraps yeah. are, where the string is doubled back onto mm-hmm. itself and locked, they will solder though that. Does that smooth it out, or does it solidify it? Just locks it into magic? place. It's locks okay. it into place. So they'll. Huh. That's something that Renee Martinez used to do to Stevie Ray Vaughan's huh. guitars. He was Stevie Ray Vaughan's tech. I see. So he would, he would solder those string wraps yeah and then use um 
this tiny little uh, shrink tubing around the first, like, two inches of the string huh. so that um, the string was, like, protected from the the plate of the of the strat tremolo where yeah. it comes out of the block and up over all the, the plate. mechanics before this. So the string yeah. doesn't hit anything. It's yeah, but that's getting huh. super deep. That's getting crazy. Just make sure it's set up properly and use a little bit of graphite in the nut slots. Those are the, those are the top two things. Well, those are good. Yeah. And those are basic. Yeah, they really are. Thank you so much, JR. Thanks to everybody participated in the show if you want to participate in the show you really should you should uh, go over to my website which is ericdaw.com you can click the contact link and send in your question or comment there and we'll use it as part of the show the other way to do it is to call or text 757-774-8482 at 757-774-8482 and uh, leave your voicemail there and we'll use that as part of the show. Thank you so much. That's a good one. That's the show, and we are out of here. Bye-bye.